article on your website mentions that a one-size-fits-all approach to autonomy will not work. I am curious, what examples do you have on how Kodiak is balancing that AV approach that works with the diverse nature of trucking? What we do is really, and I will make the example of Maersk, right? Maersk has set out and said their strategy is to move from being a, seen as a shipping company to being an end-to-end -end logistics provider. Now, end-to-end -end logistics means, you know, they have ships, they will have trucks, they will have delivery vehicles, but they don't yet have that huge trucking network, right? right? They have some extent, but not yet like one of the other large carriers. And so they want to build it. And they say, well, in order to build that, why don't, and since I'm building it new anyways, why don't I build it in a way that actually takes autonomous trucks into consideration, that takes the strengths of autonomous trucks into consideration. Hey everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Caution Wide Right. I'm Luke, your host, and today we're gonna to be talking about the race to fully autonomous trucking to become a reality with hopes to transform the $4 trillion global freight industry. The aim is level four autonomy, meaning full automation without human intervention. The technology is nailed, then peak hours of travel can be circumnavigated to provide greater assurance on cargo arrival times, uh, partnered with improved safety of fellow road users, fleets would expect to see more balanced routes and improved safety scores, fuel economy, and of course, truckers are probably hoping for a slower transition of autonomous tech that will leave them plenty of time for operation optimization or new opportunities to rise across the supply chain as this transition uh, happens. Well, we will look at the autonomous trucking industry with help of Michael Wiesinger, the Vice President of Commercialization at Kodiak Robotics, which was founded because they believe autonomous technology will save lives, not just someday, but soon. Michael spent most of his career in the automotive and supply chain industries working for Detroit Diesel, a Daimler subsidiary, before he joined BCG, where he focused on strategy, operations, and supply chain topics for some of the world's largest automotive OEMs. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. Really, really excited to be here today. Yeah, and so today we see Kodiak trucks from California to Florida, uh, over 2 million miles driven, uh, with nearly 4,000 loads delivered with an estimated 1.5 million pounds of freight delivered per week. And additionally, Kodiak has mapped over 18,000 miles of road or one-fifth of the U.S. interstate system across 14 states well, I think there's 30 trucks in the fleet doing more than 50 loads per week, all paid commercial deliveries. Can you give the listeners sort of a rundown of uh, the trucking hubs and what Kodiak is up to today? Absolutely. So first of all, you did your research well. All your stats line up very nicely. So Kodiak is developing autonomous trucking technology. Now, today, we actually operate a small fleet. We have 33 trucks that are doing development runs, as well as commercial runs that are paid deliveries for our customers. So that's where we are today. Most of those runs are done for customers like IKEA, Maersk, and many, many others that I'm sure you have, you have seen publicly. Now, those runs are all done out of our Dallas hub, right? That's where we really have most of our trucks. In California, we do um, development operations. Now, in the future, we don't want to be our own fleet or carrier. We actually want to use our technology to upfit somebody else's fleet with it and allow them to operate driverlessly. So we really developed this, we call it a turnkey solution that has the technology, the services around it, the network, as you already mentioned, in terms of the maps and everything, and provide that to the fleets so they can then operate autonomous trucks in the future. Awesome. And so, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the technology that will be adaptive. Uh, we'll talk a lot about the tech itself. Uh, I think your Generation 5 uh, rolled out in April, or at least was announced. Uh, but do you see maybe just a handful of trucks joining in the coming months? Or do you see the adoption or growth, fleet adoption, fleet growth, uh, much quicker than that, more than just a handful in like, the coming year or two? Yeah, in general, as I said, we have like 33 trucks and, and we believe that's currently a pretty good size for what we need from a development perspective, right? right? 
we could of course say you know we want to have a hundred trucks but it, it's just not um economically um you know the the most um rational decision and so we say that the trucks that we currently have we will grow them but it's really a good position to have now when you think about the rollout of actual driverless trucks, right? Today, those trucks are still operated with a safety driver. Yep. So in every run that we do on public roads, there's a safety driver in there. On closed courses, we have already done the safety analysis and everything and actually have driverless trucks, but not on public roads. Now, there is a kind of a gradual progression towards doing driverless runs on the road. Right. And as we get into 2024 towards the end of next year, you will actually see initial driverless runs on public roads, but again, at a very small scale because it's a, it's a kind of a gradual shift, right? You need to do a lot of analysis when you do that and you don't just say, oh, okay, tomorrow we're going to go driverless on thousand trucks. That's not how it's going to happen. So it's really gradual and, and every trucker, you know, that thinks about how fast are those autonomous trucks coming, it's going to be as kind of a slow rollout. Yeah, and do you see it being more as this rollout happens? I mean, you got, you know, you can be just staying on the interstate and then once it's that last mile, is there the driver switch? Um, if, if you could get the driver out, for example, um, and then the driver switch and do finish that last mile, do you expect that to be uh, just keep it driverless the whole way through? Or, you know, additionally, the sort of this rollout speaking so with timeline, um, obviously, you probably focus regional in the south, but then eventually move north, dealing with winter weather and things like that. Is that sort of the is that that slower adoption kind of a thing? Yeah, let's let's uh, answer the several of those <laughs> yeah, questions. Yeah. So the first one is I think that you're asking is about deployment models. Yeah. And there the industry has mostly talked about what is called kind of a transfer hub approach at Kodiak. We call it truck put, right? Okay. That is an absolute valid approach that we believe will roll out um, initially. But we, from many, many conversations with customers and different customers groups, have also understood that some of them do not actually want that additional tray or first and last mile, if you will. Some of them say, for my specific business, I have very high density and high volume lanes. And I have terminals that are super close to the interstate and actually don't really you know, have complex driving involved, they say, can you actually get us an end-to-end solution, right? And so this is a second deployment model that we are currently exploring and have made really, really good progress on in the last six months, really. And so we believe, yes, the first rollout will most likely be with a transfer hub approach. But right after that, there will be some lanes Again, it's not going to be 100 lanes at the same time, but a yep. gradual rollout where we will go DC to DC. Now, at those DCs or transfer hubs for that matter, there will always be humans involved, right? Somebody needs to inspect the truck. Somebody needs to you know, change the trailer. Somebody needs um, to make sure that the truck is ready to be launched on its mission. Fueling, of course, is a topic there as well, right? So it's really about hey, the human will do certain things and then send the autonomous truck on its mission. And that can happen at a transfer hub or directly at the DC, wherever um, we have what we call this kind of launch and landing area. And there's a lot that no. I want... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. There's, there's a lot there that I'll, I'll definitely want to tackle moving forward. Uh, you mentioned inspection. Um, and then you also mentioned fueling. So I do want to, to bring up, obviously, the, the process of fueling. But you also announced... Uh, for different types of fueling, for example, uh, that potentially EV trucks is going to be adapting or utilizing Kodiak tech. Uh, I'm curious, just what's that transition sort of look like and what's the benefit uh, using EV? Yeah, so of course that transition is happening, right? We all need to be aware that there are certain zero emission targets. And so we want to be able to support that, of course. Right. Now, when in many conversations with customers, you know, they have different thoughts on is battery electric the future or is it hydrogen fuel cell, right? And so we don't want to prescribe anything. So what we actually did, we took a step back and said, well, our platform or our system needs to be able to work with any platform and any powertrain. And that's really how we have developed it, right? So if we move from an internal combustion engine to an electric engine, 
it actually only becomes easier for us. Yep. Because what you take away is kind of, you know, the transmission that still has some uncertainty on when exactly is the, the gear shift happening and when do you have a different torque. You don't have that in an electric truck. Right. So in fact, for us, it doesn't really matter. It only gets easier with an electric truck. Now, and I always say this, to me, where are you exactly going to use an electric autonomous trucks versus, um, you know, hydrogen fuel cell autonomous truck is a network exercise. You need to think right. about which lanes uh, to make sense and which mileage and range can you actually get with those trucks, right? So we're working with the customers and say, okay, where do you want to operate autonomous trucks? And then in the future, where do you want to operate zero emission autonomous trucks and really define that rollout together with them? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting transition for sure. And uh, I think we just uh, had a, uh, was it 2023's, uh, what was it? It was sort of the EV competition of, of freight delivery. And, um, you know, you had, well, you had Tesla Semi in there. You had uh, Daimler's uh, eCascadia and a couple others. And, you, you know, seeing the stats, the real world stats coming out is quite fascinating with that transition. So um, I'm sure you guys are watching that closely as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very excited because I would say two years ago, everyone would have said, no, absolutely, on the long haul, it needs to be hydrogen. Right. And I think with what you currently see, some companies pushing the boundaries there on the range on battery electric, I think you actually might have a viable option with battery electric. Of course, we need to solve the grid and we need yes. to make sure that those charging stations are available, right? We all know it's not that easy. Yeah. But um, I think there is actually really opportunity on battery, battery electric trucks as well for the long haul. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the, the, the tech transition right now, if you just say 2030, I mean, you got the EV transition. That's seven years of so much transition. Well, I guess six now. We're almost done with, the, with 2023 already. But, uh, but then again, autonomous uh, trucking, autonomous driving in general, uh, what could happen by 2030, it's quite a dramatic potential transition that we're we're approaching quicker than maybe a lot of our listeners might expect um, but I do want to talk about some of the tech uh, as well so you mentioned or uh, Kodiak mentioned in April that uh, they announced the fifth generation Kodiak driver which uh, has this is the what the add-on um, that you can create and add to any class 8 truck it has 28% uh, more sensors while also eliminating the need for the roof mounted sensors 60% CPU performance increase, 130% GPU performance increase. Uh, it uses high-quality LiDAR and uh, what is it, Ambarella's AI perception system on chip uh, technology for camera data processing. It's quite impressive. I'm just curious, how many Gen 5 tech do you hope to roll out, say, next year or in the coming years? Yeah, we are in a gradual shift to upgrade the fleet, right? Yeah. We, we still operate different um, generations in our right. fleet, of course. And you have to imagine we are, of course, already working on the next big thing, right? Yeah. So I, to I us, like we didn't question. stop at Gen 5. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we are very really actively working on Gen 6, right? Yep. And so for us, since we have realized, oh, Gen 6 is actually closer, we actually uh, pulled the timeline in for Gen 6. So we are bringing that out um, sooner than, than we might have expected. We actually decided not to upgrade like all 30 to like a Gen 5 or something like that, right? right? We actually say, okay, we have a couple of them in our fleet in California as well as in in Dallas and Texas. But since Gen 6 is coming um, at some point, let's actually wait and then upgrade more to Gen 6 and not, you know, spend the time and money to actually upgrade the entire fleet to Gen 5. So we always... And, that, and I say that in everything that we do, we're always trying to be really, really smart and capital efficient and think about, oh, is this the right thing to do? Maybe this was our plan of record, but is this the right thing to do? And if it isn't, let's actually not do it, right? Let's just yeah. shift, change, shift gears. We are a small company. We're able to do that. And I think that's really something that, that sets us apart from somebody else. That's awesome. It's great to hear that. Um, and I know, so even today, so the, 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 the big macro push of AI in many fields, uh, do you see or what kind of supply chain concerns do you have, at least in the short term, with the vehicle tech? Obviously, you know, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a mass rollout of this, the tech, but just, again, just the adoption uh, and the tech and supply chains, do you see that as a concern in the short term or is, is that something that can transition pretty smoothly moving forward? We don't really see it as an issue. So, 
one thing that we do differently than some others is we actually use what we call kind of off the shelf components, right? So most of the things that we do, we use chips that anyone else could also buy. Now there are a few exceptions, but mostly we don't do our own lighters, our own radars and so on, right? Yeah. We use what's available. And for those things, we actually currently don't see um, having a big supply chain issue there. Now, I think when when you talk about Gen 5 and, and, and how that's rolling out, Again, right? It's not going to be thousand trucks next year, so it's really that gradual rollout. So we really we have a team working on supply chain. We have a team predicting and forecasting what will that supply chain situation be. And importantly, we are constantly scouting what's the next best thing, right? So for us, constantly evaluating, hey, which lighters, which radars, which cameras are out there, then taking them, testing them, do reliability tests, and only after you know analysis, we actually decide, oh, this might actually be an option. Let's use that sensor. And then, of course, in that decision, also take supply chain um, certainty into account to make sure we are not running afterwards into a risk of nobody can actually deliver that specific sensor. And I'm curious, because you guys started in 2018, um, obviously, you're trying to get a lot as much real world data as possible um, with, with vehicles. That's that's the bread and butter. I'm just curious, uh, in 2018, 2019, how much uh, was commuter, computerized data or, or testing done uh, offline based or not in the real world? And are you still continuing that process still today? Absolutely. Yeah. So off-road or closed course testing as well as simulations are super important, especially simulation, right? Because you can test many, many things in a way cheaper way than actually putting a truck on the road. Yeah. So what we do, let's say we, we're going on a run between Dallas and Houston. And between Dallas and Houston, we, of course, whenever there is a disengage or whenever there is a specific event, we record all of that data, right? Mm -hmm. All of that data is ingested into our system and re-simulated. So let's say the driver disengaged for whatever reason, driver just thought, oh, no, I don't, I don't like what the truck did here. I'm going to actually take over. Yeah. We re-simulate and say, what would have happened if the driver had not disengaged? Yeah. In 99.99% of the cases, the truck would just have handled in fine, right? And they say, okay, cool. Don't actually need to change anything. In the 0.0 whatever 1%, oh, we actually learned something really important and say, hey, we need to change our system there, right? Yeah. And so constantly when we push a new update to our software, we re-simulate all those scenarios over and over again. And that's really how you do development. That's really the, the learning that people are talking about, right? You, you don't just learn by driving on the road. Driving on the road is more like, well, you see how it performs out there and how the driver is kind of satisfied with it, right? Mm -hmm. That's really it. But the learning actually all happens in iterations and simulation and so on. Exactly. And what I think technology, uh, it's its the battle of the nines, right? 99.9%, 99%, 99.9%, I've I've been following the sort of Tesla full self-driving transition. I know their Q3 uh, report mentioned 500 million miles of real-world driving data that they've collected, uh, which is crazy to think about. Of course, that's that's uh, everyday vehicles. I'm just curious, um, eventually they're going to have the Tesla semi-production ramp up in maybe 2024, more in 2025, probably collecting data themselves for the semi. I'm just curious for, for data collection and um, autonomy, is there a difference? Do you see a difference with uh, testing a semi in the real world versus personal vehicles? Yeah, so we don't operate any personal vehicles on our commercial um, side. We operate all um, uh, Class A trucks. And also when, when you know other companies are talking about mapping and they have their mapping vehicles and driving those highways all right. over again, we actually don't need to do that. Good. So when we collect data, first of all, all the data that we drive on our semis is, is collected and, and stored and re-simulated, right? But also when we, let's say, generate a new map, for example, we actually just drive it once. We don't have to drive it all over again because what is important, our Class A trucks that are on the road are all capable of actually um, understanding, hey, there is an update. For example, there is a new construction zone. Yep. 
hey, I will let the rest of my fleet know there's a new construction zone. So all of those vehicles, those semis that are out on the open road, constantly update everything that our system knows. Right? And so this is super important to not just have some random mapping vehicles that can only do you know, certain things and have its limitations, but actually operate the vehicles that are really equipped with our stack. And that's really the approach that we are taking. That's awesome. And I'm curious too, since we're still a little bit on the technology, the like camera calibrations or anything like that, is that something that can be done uh, without a person there, calibration boards or whatever, or is that a, a relatively simple process? Yeah, I um, love that question. So one of the things about Gen 5, and we have done this earlier, but really Gen 4, Gen 5 is very solidified that approach. We actually, if you look at our sensors, they are all housed in that sensor pod, right? So there are two sensor pods, they are housing all those sensors. All those sensors within the pod are intrinsically calibrated to each other. So everything is, you know, the light is calibrated to the camera and so on. Yeah. So when you have to, let's say, put a new sensor pod on for whatever reason, you actually take off the old sensor pod, you disconnect three cables, data and power, pressurized air, water, put a new sensor pod on, the new sensor pod comes pre-calibrated out of the box. You put that on, nice. it does connect the cables, of course, it does a final calibration to the chassis, and then it's good to go. We actually never before a run have to recalibrate anything. If, if I talk to our ops team and ask them, when did you, when was the last time that you recalibrated the system? They're like, I don't remember. <laughs> we don't, we, we just don't have to do it because it's such a solid foundation, right? Yeah. That sensor part is really one unit where all the sensors are housed inside. So this is fundamentally different. And we know, of course, this is a huge advantage compared to some of our competitors to not have to do that. We, of course, check calibrations online, right? Our system, in general, our system does a thousand health checks every 100 milliseconds. And those are things like, do I get all the LiDAR data? You know, do I have any fault code on the CAN bus from the truck? Uh, do I have the right um, tire pressure? And another one is, do I have the right calibration settings, right? Does everything look correct? So we constantly check it, but barely ever do we have to recalibrate our system, which is, you know, really phenomenal on, on, on the approach that, that our team has taken there. Yeah, I mean, on, and you mentioned, you know, having the tech be able to uh, be adopted on any Class 8 vehicle for any fleet uh, moving forward, hopefully moving forward. And, and that that's important because you got maintenance teams, um, you know, might have their hands on this. Maybe you don't need to have a super specialized tech person managing some of these things. I am curious what kind of training, we're going to go into uh, some of the partnerships in a little bit, but what kind of training do you guys do, whether it's for uh, fleets, uh, you know, maintenance or you know, drivers or uh, maybe even even regulatory, you know, inspectors and th things like that? What kind of training do you guys use uh, or, or have these people go through? Yeah, there are many, many involved. Uh, actually, just to comment on on the changing the sensor part because it, it's pretty funny. I'm sure you have seen our video when we worked uh, together with South and Timeout on actually showcasing that changing a sensor part is faster than changing a tire. Yeah. It literally took nine minutes. And in fact, this was actually a trained actor, right? So this was not somebody we trained over like a month of, hey, this is how you have to change a sensor part. We trained the actor in the morning and then they did it in the afternoon and just completed the task. Wow. So that's that's how easy we actually wanted to um, design the system and have really achieved to do that. Now, of course, there is some training involved when it comes to, for example, enhanced inspections. As long as you have completed that CVSA enhanced inspection every 24 hours, that's how it's currently written, right? right. And those are qualified people. There's a certification, there's a program that we have worked to, uh, together with CVSA and others on, on really developing that program. And certainly, there will be technicians specialized on autonomy, but really most of the things, right? We don't think anyone will go out and change a lighter out of that sensor pod, right? right. <laughs> our, our head of hardware always says, well, if that happens, probably afterwards, many thing, many more things are not working than before. So we really believe in that. Take off that one sensor pod, put it on again, and, and you're good to go. Right? So there's not much training necessary. But of course, there, there are kind of level one, level two, level three support that we will have. We, we are working there with several service providers um, where we actually say, so Kodiak 
will most likely not have, you know, several locations with several technicians all over the country. We mostly want to use the ecosystem, want to work with other companies. And so that's what we are actually doing. We work with them and say, what do we need to train your technicians? Because you already have technicians. They are very skilled, right? But yeah. what is it in addition that we actually have to do and work through it with them together? So it's really working together with partners, building this ecosystem of people that are capable of changing things, that are capable of supporting the truck. Also, when it comes to roadside assistance or, you know, whenever the truck has to be towed for for um Hopefully it never happens, but you know trucks have to be have to be towed for more like engine reasons and and things like that. Yep. So we certainly will have um, trained personnel together with our partners. And you know you mentioned some of the inspection stuff and some of these these issues that are, are sort of the day to day of trucking. One of the ones I'm always curious about, at least in the short term, what's your thoughts about the future of pre trip, post trip, the daily inspections, the DVIR? Do you see it as you know sort of a the truck should return to home so someone's always seeing it or you mentioned i think pilot is the sort of the trucks uh, what'd you call it the truck uh truck what truck yeah truck port so at the at there maybe a pilot person or someone else is doing the dvir uh for you or you know do you think that there's enough tech that maybe down the road you don't even have to worry about like the truck could do the, the full dvir itself yeah so as I said, there's certainly a lot of health checks that our truck already does, yes. right? It really depends on how much sensors will actually be on the truck in the future. And that's more like an, an OEM topic than an autonomy topic, right? I think there's certainly a world where you can check everything automatically, right? Everything just by information that is kind of living on the canvas and coming from all the sensors that you have. I think it is there. But I think that it will take some time to actually get to that world, right? Totally, totally. So in the meantime, so in the meantime, it's really, yes, we see there are people involved. There are people at those truck ports that can be a pilot person, a Southern Timer person, many, many other companies that we work with. There can be a carrier's a fleet personnel, right? And maintenance personnel that actually does that DVIR or even might be enhanced inspection trained, right? And actually does the enhanced inspection because that's what you essentially want. Again, that enhanced inspection has to happen once every 24 hours. So you need to make sure that the truck passes a location once every 24 hours where that CVSA trained person is, is available. Now, those trucks will be on the road a lot, right? So we don't expect them to dead head back because they need to, you know, get a DVIR or need to get an enhanced inspection. And that's why I always say it is all a network exercise. Yeah. And the network exercise is, is important in order to deploy autonomous trucks efficiently together with our fleets. So we really look at which lanes do you have the volume, the density, and so on, which lanes make sense, which transfer hubs will actually be used on that lane, if any, right? Yeah. And then define together with them to make sure, yes, this is actually going to work at, at scale as well. Awesome. So uh, regarding safety, so obviously that's the most important piece with a lot of this transition, safety for on the road, for everyday drivers, uh, professional drivers, no matter what. And that's what we're all about here at CNS as well is, is uh, safety and, of course, compliance. I'm just curious, what are the biggest benefits for fleets that are going to adopt AV technology um, into their fleets? What are some of the biggest benefits that they can see on the safety side? Yeah, you already mentioned safety is an extremely important one, right? If you look at uh, stats today, 5,800 people are killed every year just related to truck um, crashes, right? This is a horrific number. It's really high. And so really our goal is, you know, to get that number down to build the world's safest driver. So you will see that our system, again, does like all these health checks. It's constantly monitoring. It constantly monitors the entire environment. Now, every truck driver or many truck drivers are trained on the SMIS system. And, you know, looking between mirrors, it takes a little. So they, they don't have a 360-degree view all the time. Right. But that truck will have it all the time. And that's just fundamentally different in terms of what it can see and what it can process, right? So it will be always much more attentive. Yeah. Of course, never gets drowsy and never gets distracted. So that is a huge um, safety ben benefit right there. And another one that I, I think many people don't know, but I think it's really important. 
that truck will make very smart decisions about, for example, speed. So let's say you get into fog and let's say dense fog and the truck actually says, well, I don't see as far as I typically see and as far as I need to see in order to drive at 65 miles per hour. So the truck will say, well, that means, okay, it's going to do a calculation. I need to reduce my speed to 45 miles per hour or something like that, right? So super safe approach, of course. Now, you could say we should do that as well as, well as humans, but I, I will not exclude myself, right? Very often we don't. <laughs> Sometimes we do, but very often we have somewhere to get to and some, some kind of in a hurry. And then we say, oh, you know, I think this actually works. I can drive that speed. The truck won't do that. Yep. The truck will just say, no. I am not, I'm not comfortable doing that. I will reduce my speed. And it's just a, a lot of things that many people maybe don't always think about and I think important to know. And to add to that, like, uh, I, I don't know if many truckers out there realize, but a uh, an inspector or, you know, even officer can f- cite you for not slowing down if the weather conditions they feel uh, you should have slowed down. You should have, uh, you know, managed your speed uh, better. Uh, you can be cited for that. So if you're not slowing down for, uh, you know, uh, heavy rain, fog or snow or ice or things like that, you can be cited. So, um, I mean, and, then, and that's the thing that we talk about, too, with um, just safety, safety scores in general, if it can prevent more or less accidents um, and uh, just the safety in general for the, the, the health score of that company uh, with FMCSA. Of course, FMCSA's goals get zero accidents, right? So it's great to have that kind yep. of partnership with that. Uh, but yeah, so maybe even safety scores um, for carriers can decrease over time. Um, fuel efficiency, uh, you know, would would increase uh, potentially with, e- uh, with the autonomous trucks because it's driving more consistently. Um, do you believe, I'm curious about like the liability and insurance side. So liability might be off the carrier because they can blame the manufacturer or maybe even like Kodiak uh, for the accident. Do you see that as the future where uh, Kodiaks could be liable for, for issues versus the carrier? And then how would that affect whether it's insurance uh, or just litigation in general? Yeah, um, let's come let's come back to the benefit question yeah, yeah. because I think we only talked about safety, but I would love to talk about the additional benefits Please, on yeah. the liability. Um, um, but on the liability for now, so I always try to explain it in very simple words. And <laughs> what I say is always, well, today if there is an accident, God forbid, you know, the carrier has insurance, right? The carrier has insurance that is typically stepping up. They have some reserves um, that they unfortunately sometimes have to use. Now, the driver doesn't have like a, a liability or product liability or something like that, right? So it's really up to the it's really up to the carrier, right? So in the future, with an autonomous truck, you will have that um, same insurance, you know, cargo and auto and, and everything that the carrier has today. And let's say there's an accident happening. Now you will have investigation. Investigation will determine was it a stock truck fault? I don't know, a brake or engine or whatever, right? That didn't work correctly. Or was it an autonomy fault? So let's just assume for a second, Kodiak system was not working properly as, as it should have been working. We will actually have product liability to, to step in for that. And that's fundamentally different compared to what you have today. So I always say the situation actually gets clearer. And in addition, to that addition to that product liability in addition what you will actually see is there's no discussion anymore what happened we have camera data right. we have radar data lidar data we always just press play and can say this is exactly what happened right <laughs> we don't need to discuss what exactly happened and i think this is a fundamental change when when it comes to accidents and how those things will be recreated and everything um there's just so much more data and so much more informa- information available it will be pretty simple to determine what what has been happening. Right, totally. And then you mentioned other other benefits that you see with autonomous vehicle transition. What what others uh, would you want to add to that list? Yeah, so it's so important. Um, you yeah. you touched on sustainability, mm-hmm. and the common um, talking points that most 
AV providers and, and industry talks about is the truck will drive smoother and more consistent. And I fully agree, this is definitely going to happen and this will have some impact. Now, I will actually take that a step further. And it goes back to kind of a network exercise because think about the deadhead that you have today. Deadhead related to, let's say, the driver needs to get home or wants to get home um, or other reasons, right? Let's just assume we don't have the driver in there anymore and they can actually reduce your deadhead. Yeah. Deadhead is 10 to 15% of all miles driven, sometimes even more, right? It really depends on the network that KRS have built. So that's a huge savings for cost as well as emissions if we can actually take out some of that. Let's talk about out of front miles, right? Um, you know, sometimes the truck does not always drive where it's supposed to drive because somebody wants to use a different um, gas station than what's actually on the routing plan. So out of route miles, those are not officially reported, but it's a significant portion as well, right? So let's assume we can actually take away some of those out of route miles. Again, huge savings in cost, but also huge savings in terms of um, less fuel consumption and carbon emissions. And then the last one, I think this is an important one, idling. Today, of course, there's a lot of idling. If you look at the stats, it's like, uh, I think on average, 1,500 gallons per truck per year. This is a huge number. And why is this happening? Of course, because you know you need to cool um, the cab during hot days and you need to heat it during cold days and so on. If there's no driver in there anymore, do you need that idling? Do you even have the truck idling somewhere? Or is it actually just mostly running on the road, right? Yeah. And so again, if you take that away, the sustainability benefits are just far beyond what anyone is, is talking about. And I think it's so important to educate the industry and to educate listeners on really those, those benefits. And then one that we haven't yet talked about at all, maybe for some carriers, even the most important benefit is being able to grow the capacity and the revenue that they're hauling. Right? Let's say that truck doesn't drive seven hours per day as it's, it's currently, but like 20 hours per day, right? Well, you can hold so much more freight, you can actually expand your top line and you expand your company valuation. So I think this is just fundamentally important to understand that there are Safety is the most important thing, but really that additional revenue, that additional sustainability benefits um, is actually really making a compelling story for autonomous trucks. It's a crazy future we're, we're approaching into. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. It, yeah, it, it for is. sure. <laughs> there's so much like we've had other people on uh, talking about the other vehicle tech and in-cab tech and uh, all the sensors and things like that uh, that are around in, in a vehicle, it's just impressive. Um, I'm curious, so obviously the, the transition to autonomy is gonna take uh, some work as the transportation industry is extremely diverse. A uh, lot of unique networks, operations, uh, service and maintenance processes, TMS systems, and so much more. Um, and I believe your latest article on your website mentions that a one-size-fits-all approach to autonomy will not work. I am curious, what examples do you have on how Kodiak is balancing that AV approach that works with the diverse nature of trucking? Yeah, super important. I mean, we if you look at the customers that we work with, right, it's like shippers with a private fleet, it's carriers, it's kind of logistics uh, platform providers. So it's really working with all of them to understand all the aspects of the business and how we can provide value to them. Now, our main um, customers in the future will be the carriers or anyone who operates a fleet really, right? But we work with IKEA just to understand what autonomous trucks can do for them and then bring in a carrier to actually do it. So what we do is really, and I, I will make the example of Maersk, right? Maersk has set out and said their strategy is to move from being a seen as a shipping company to being an end-to-end -end logistics provider. Now, end-to-end -end logistics means, you know, they have ships, they will have trucks, they will have delivery vehicles, but they don't yet have that huge trucking network, right? right? They have some extent, but not yet like one of the other large carriers. And so they want to build it. And they say, well, in order to build that, why don't, and since I'm building it new anyways, why don't I build it in a way that actually takes autonomous trucks into consideration, that takes the strengths of autonomous trucks into consideration? Yeah. And so that's what we do with them, right? We define where in, in, your, in their network building exercise, where do autonomous trucks make sense? 
what do you want to hold with human drivers um, in the future versus what do you want to hold with autonomous trucks? So it's really working hand in hand. And then it's so funny that you said uh, like the TMS, right? And, and, and it's so diverse. So what we actually do with all of them, Mersk was just one example, but all of our official partners that are part of the partner deployment program, we actually work through all these steps, analyze the network, analyze the systems, like which fleet management systems, transport management systems, what do we have to integrate with? Right. In fact, in fact, we have just launched our first fully integrated, um, fully TMS integration and first operations deployment that actually leverages that. Wow. which is super exciting. Yeah. Now we understand that there are different transport management systems, a lot of homegrown systems out there, right? We all know that. So we basically build an API that is able to integrate with all of those. And that's just, again, since it's so diverse, you need to take a step back, kind of abstract things, build the right things, like a, an, kind of an abstract API layer, and then do a, a little work to do the final integration into those specific systems. But it's really about being smart what to build and where, you know, you can just leverage what's already out there. Yeah, totally. And so you mentioned, uh, you know, these different partnerships. I know that uh, you have a partnership development program. Uh, people that are part of that, you've mentioned IKEA, but you've got Werner, uh, Maersk, Ten Roads, uh, Siva, Logistics, US Express, Tyson. I'm just curious, sort of looking in the timeline, um, can you sort of, what's your expectation in the growth of those partnership programs, uh, short-term and long-term? Yeah, it's really, so today for most of those, we hold freight on you know a daily basis mostly or four to five days a week. And we have done that since actually quite some time. For some of them since a year, for some of them it's newer and we're just establishing like long-term operations. And then what we want to do with them is really in those operations, actually set it up in a way as if it was already driverless. So right. already doing the enhanced inspections, already doing everything, all the processes that are needed around it to operate autonomous trucks. And so then once we actually are able to take out the driver on these commercial runs, it's basically just flipping a switch and saying, oh, we have already done everything. Now we can operate driverless trucks. And that point, it will be a small scale, right? There will be a couple autonomous trucks running for them, not like hundreds immediately. Then we will say, okay, let's say this is the first lane. There are a couple of trucks running. Let's add a second lane. Let's add a third lane. Let's add a couple of trucks here and there. And then really, you know, after we have like a few of those lanes, a few of those deployments and learned a lot, right? This is, there's so much that we have to learn. Yeah. We don't want to scale too quickly because we still have to improve things. And once we say, okay, this is now really ready to go, then we then we scale it across the country and, of course, across uh, fleets and, and, and the trucks that they have with us. And as far as timeline, I know that's everybody's big question, whether it's an investor or just general. Do you see driverless uh, AV happening in trucking by 2030 in some regional capacity? Do you, what, what, what would be the growth goal, uh, you know, internationally as well? Yeah, I'm 2030 and 100%. So we will do our first driverless runs by the end of next year. And then the first driverless commercial deliveries are currently planned for the following year. Wow. So now, as you said, 2030, by 2030, we actually see a fairly fairly decent penetration of the lanes that we have, um, the trucks that are actually running now. We'll not call any numbers or anything like that. That's fair. But yes, absolutely, <laughs> you, 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 will, you will see those. Now, you mentioned internationally. Absolutely. Today, we have to focus on the U.S. There is, the market is huge, right? We can, yeah. I think we can change really do so much change about safety and, and so on with autonomous trucks just in the US. But we have a lot of inbound requests from countries like Australia, Brazil, India, Europe, of course, all countries that have the same driver shortage issue right? that like really exists everywhere, same safety concerns. So yes, we absolutely, absolutely see this being a global business, but have to focus on the US so far and then roll it out um, probably later. And do you see any regulatory hurdles, at least in the U.S.? So obviously, California, it was very close to, uh, uh, you know, a, a legislative law being passed to, like, 
prevent uh, autonomous driving trucks in California. Governor Newsom just vetoed that to allow it to happen. But who knows? Do you expect that that law, which went through the House uh, relatively quick, the legislative process relatively quickly, do you expect that kind of debate happening across states moving forward? Do you expect some kind of pushback, slowdown, um, or what, what are some of those legislative hurdles or uh, compliance hurdles that you have to worry about? Yeah, so generally, if you look at the U.S. today, there are 40 states, a little bit over 40 states that actually allow driverless testing for autonomous trucks, right. and 23 of them that already allow driverless deployment. So literally in Texas, we could go driverless today. There's no hurdle anymore. Now, this is not a federal um, framework. It's really a state-by-state -state framework, but it allows us. And if you look at lanes like Dallas to Atlanta, which we drive on a daily basis, all of the states in between actually have that regulatory framework that would uh, already allow autonomous trucks. So I don't see big hurdles from that perspective. Now, talking about California, we, of course, very much appreciate that Governor Newsom made the right decision, the decision for technology, for safety, and, and so on, and really improving the safety of roadways, which I think is, is very important. Yeah. You actually have seen there were bills in other states before that. All of them have been shut down immediately, right? And I think that's really what's going to happen if if, if anyone would run some of those bills again. I think they will be shut down very quickly because people realize this is actually solving a real issue, making roadways safer, yeah. right? And so I really think we need to think about the bigger picture, not just like oh, we want to prevent innovation. I, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. And we are honestly um, not too concerned that um, there will be huge regulatory hurdles from that perspective. Good. I mean, I mean it's a data game. So if you can show it's safer, <laughs> regulators are exactly. going to be like, oh, it's the data. The <laughs> yeah. data. Like, it's hard to argue against <laughs> safety. <laughs> Yes, I would agree. <laughs> so again, uh, you're, you know, I know our time's almost up, but I do have another hurdle question that I am curious about, and that, of course, is macroeconomics. Um, so obviously, mm -hmm. we just saw in the trucking industry, Convoy, uh, you know, it's a load board. They closed due to the massive freight recession that's happening, and uh, of course, the contraction in the capital markets. You've got interest rates that are really high, and a Fed that's like. Mm, wait a little longer on high interest rates uh, before backing off of it. Uh, we also see that, you know, the other autonomous truck uh, companies out there, uh, many of them, I think there's been eight, uh, it, it depends on how you count them, eight, nine, ten of them, uh, three, four of them have, have shut down. You've got Auto, Startsky, Robotics, Peloton, Locomotion, uh, different different approaches, of course. You got Too Simple, who's like, I'm out of the U.S. We're going to go focus somewhere else, and and uh, you know their you know uh, stock crashed, kind of a thing. I'm just curious. Obviously, self driving, it's coming and it's expanding very very fast. Do you see the macroeconomics as a hurdle for Kodiak, and uh, at least in the short term, and what? What is that scary, you know, issue? And can does, do you see Kodiak being able to be fine moving past it? The short answer is no, because we are really differentiated from our competition. Mm -hmm. If you look at Kodiak, we have from the very beginning said, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So you need to be capital efficient. Yes. Right? In the, we, we call it Spackabalooza, um, two years ago when everyone went like public <laughs> yeah. without revenues, without profit, oh, yeah. without secular growth, we were like, yeah, this isn't the right thing for us to do right now. Right? This just doesn't make sense. And so we always said we are focusing on the best talent, not the most talent. Right? We want to have the right people. We don't say we need, you know, I don't know, several thousands of people. Right. And so we always stayed nimble and small. And I think that has really, really helped us. And so it's fundamentally different approach. Now, if you think about um, the general macroeconomic, is there a downtrend? Absolutely. Is there a freight recession? Absolutely. But just think about it. Those things happen all the time, right? There's a freight recession every, every couple of years. Yep. And any carrier that you talk to, they're like, yeah, this is our business. It's happening. We know it's going to go up again, right? So yep. long term, if you have discussions with them, everyone sees... Yeah, I mean, this is what it is right now, but we know 
freight volume is going to go up again. Yep. So we will have to transport more volume. So we will need autonomous trucks to actually do it because we don't have enough drivers to take care of it. Exactly. Right. So, so when you talk to any carrier, nobody's like really concerned about that. Now, of course, today everyone has, hey, I need to focus on, you know, running my business right now um, and spend some time on autonomous trucks. But then, you know, next year, when, when we are hopefully over the hump, everyone is like, okay, now how quickly can we actually roll out autonomous trucks, right? Exactly. That's really the conversation that we're having. In addition, I don't know if you know, but one thing that we did last year, we won a military DOD contract, right? Yep. And that is another very recession-proof um, use case where we identified that we can actually utilize our technology with very, very minor addition. Mostly we can just use our technology. We call it dual use technology. And you will see that really promoted from, you know, the army, from the private industry, this yeah. dual use, which makes a lot of sense. So that's another stream where we say, you know, that's really helping us um, because it is recession proof and it will um, always be there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, obviously, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I do. Do you have any other closing thoughts? Any other takeaways that you want to make sure the listeners uh, come from uh, with this with this interview? I think it's just important for everyone to to realize autonomous trucks are real. Uh, whenever somebody gets into a truck and gets a ride, and the truck does just all of it, they're like, "Oh, yeah, this is actually happening yep. today." So everyone who has the opportunity, I encourage to read up on it, you know, come for a visit, talk to us because this is happening sooner than many people expect. Awesome. Well, thank you for this incredible conversation, Michael. Uh, thanks for joining me today. If you want to follow Kodiak's growth more closely, you can go check out the link that we're going to have in the bio below uh, to their website. They keep a lot of information up, um, you know, announcements and stuff on their website as well as their YouTube channel. They've got a lot of FAQs that I know are going to be coming out. Um, and a lot of really impressive video, uh, which I might actually overlay a little bit in, uh, in our podcast, but, um, yeah, go check them out, go, uh, subscribe to their channel and follow them. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to like the video and subscribe. We have a lot more great conversations and discussions coming down the road, as well as, uh, we always talk about safety and compliance and, uh, trucking news in general. So, uh, be sure to hit that like and subscribe. And uh, if you need any help with uh, fleet safety scores now, we are here to help as we're the experts uh, with trucking and compliance uh, in this industry. And with that, thank you for watching. And as always, stay safe out there.